G'day and welcome to Between the Lines, on air, online and via your ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. Now today on the show we'll take a look at the East Asian geopolitics, North Korea and Kim Jong-un's nuclear campaign. Plus later in the program, is democracy promotion the right US-Australia strategy to counter China's opposing autocracy promotion in the region. With the US Secretary of State and Defence Secretary in town, we'll put Australia's security alliance in the context of the security competition in East Asia. Stay with us for that. Well, it's been more than a year since Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un met at Singapore and a month since their meeting on the North Korean side of the demilitarised zone. This was the first time a sitting US president has entered the Hermit Kingdom. It was an extraordinary visual as President Trump took the final steps north toward the line separating North and South Korea, a smiling Kim Jong-un walking briskly to meet him. The first time a sitting American president has ever stepped foot inside the reclusive state, another handshake before the cameras. Well, historic events to be sure, but the jury is still out. True, Pyongyang has released US hostages halted nuclear and, until last week, missile tests, and signalled a willingness to at least talk about denuclearisation. It's a far cry from two years ago, isn't it? Remember Trump's fire and fury threats? North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury and, frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. Or Rocket Man's provocations? Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. <laughs> Little Rocket Man. We, we're going to do it because we really have no choice. Indeed, at one point, North Korea's foreign ministry even warned Australia was coming within the range of the nuclear strike. That said, Pyongyang has hinted it might resume nuclear and missile tests if the US-South Korean military exercises continue. Well, let's get an update on North Korea, as well as its enigmatic 35-year-old dictator from Anna Fifield. She's been an Asia correspondent for the Washington Post and before that, the Financial Times for several years. She's been closer than almost any journalist to the North Korean regime, having visited there regularly over the past 15 years. Her recent book is called The Great Successor, The Secret Rise and Rule of Kim Jong-un. That's published by John Murray. When my colleague Hamish MacDonald interviewed Anna a few weeks ago, I actually rushed to the bookstore and I bought a copy of it. And I have to say, it's an absolutely outstanding book. Anna, welcome to Between the Lines. Well, thank you very much, Tom. What a great introduction. Well, I don't do it all often, but it's very good. Now, Pyongyang's last nuclear test was nearly two years ago. It last launched uh, a long-range missile in November 2017, though it's tested a few short-range weapons since then. Uh, Donald Trump would say that's that's great progress, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he would say that that's great progress. I mean, and certainly, as you said, it's a sharp change from where we were two years ago. But I think this is all very tactical from Kim Jong-un's perspective and really he's been in the driver's seat the whole time. He has been calling the shots here. So through 2017, he was firing missiles. It seemed like every second day he conducted these two nuclear tests, including one that was 
demonstrably a hydrogen bomb. And then when he was ready at the end of November 2017, when he said he'd completed his nuclear program, he was signalling that he was ready then to embark on this charm offensive that we saw over the course of last year. And that's because he feels like he's in a position of strength now. He's shown that he's made astonishing progress with missiles and nuclear weapons, and he wants to be seen now as the responsible and respected leader of a nuclear state kind of equivalent to Donald Trump and Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. And that's where we're at now. And Washington has made it clear that it wants Pyongyang to make concrete steps towards denuclearization before it's willing to ease those sanctions that limit North Korea's trade. But, you know, until recently, the overwhelming consensus was that Kim Jong-un was really a madman because he really wanted these nuclear weapons. Is he really crazy? He is not crazy. Uh, He is cold-blooded and ruthless, but he is definitely not irrational, not a nut job, as President Trump once called him. And, you know, to point to the evidence for that is the simple fact that he is still in power almost eight years on. He's defied all the expectations that he would be too inexperienced and too young to take over this regime. And he's done it by acting in a very rational, strategic way uh, to take control of North Korea. So part of that is embarking on this nuclear program, which enabled him to both fend off the outside mm. world, as well as kind of uh, show strength internally, give the generals something to be proud of, give the ordinary people something to be proud of. And, and they are proud of it. North Koreans have told me that mm. they're especially proud that they've managed to do something that uh, South Korea and Japan have not been able to do. So this is like all part of his plan, I think. And, And now the phase two of that plan is this charm offensive that we're in now and to try to be seen as an international statesman, to be, uh, you know, normalizing his leadership and coming out into the outside world. And most of all now, he's turning to the economy and trying to develop North Korea's very, very backwards and decrepit economy because he knows that that's where his legitimacy could uh, have trouble. That If he is not able to show the people of North Korea that life is getting better under his leadership, he may be begin to have trouble keeping... Okay, so part of your line then is that Kim's primary goal here is survival. But let me put this to you, Anna. Surely the only way uh, the North Koreans will jettison its nukes is if it feels relatively secure and has a sense that relations with the West are improving. So to the extent that's true, doesn't that still justify Trump's outreach to Kim? I think there is no way that Kim Jong-un is giving up his nuclear weapons, Uh, no way whatsoever that he feels he needs them for his security. Uh, You know, when he was taking over just two months before he took over the leadership of North Korea, Muammar Gaddafi was dragged out of a ditch in Libya uh, and beaten and killed in a very brutal way. That must be seared on Kim Jong-un's brain that this is what happens to a leader who strikes a deal with the United States to give up their nuclear capability. So I cannot see any way he would relinquish everything. 
but I think he may relinquish something. Okay. And I actually think President Trump's doing the right thing here. He, it is time to talk to North Korea because decades of isolating North Korea have not solved the problem. Uh, I, isolation has allowed North Korea to develop nuclear weapons. Okay, now, so you're in agreement here. So that in the Trump era, it's clear that the political consensus, including in Washington, it's come around to Trump's view that talking to North Korea is a good thing. But could Trump shift the consensus further if he decides Washington can actually live with a nuclear North Korea? Well, I'm not sure that Washington has come round. There are many detractors in Washington uh, of President Trump's approach and many sceptics about denuclearization. But I do think that this current phase is uh, the right approach to be taking because we should be engaging with North Korea. There should be some progress here. You know, maybe they can't get him to give up his nuclear weapons, but, you know, they can get him to stop firing them. They could get him to stop threatening them. You know, if there was more engagement with North Korea, the people of North Korea would have more exposure to the outside world, be able to open their eyes to the truth, which they get precious little of in North Korea. So there are lots of benefits to be had there that, you know, not necessarily denuclearization per se. That is a very, very tough thing to reach, but there's a lot of wiggle room between nothing and full denuclearization. So is Kim playing Trump here? I mean, he's, he's getting all the attention, but he's conceding nothing. Yeah, in many respects, he is playing Trump. I mean, Trump is waxing lyrical about Kim Jong-un, explaining away the human rights abuses, talking about how they fell in love, which I'm sure is a, an opinion that Kim Jong-un does not share. Uh, Kim Jong-un's been pragmatic about it. But Kim Jong-un has won him over without having to do anything at all other than show up. You know, it's all style, no substance. So the question is how long Kim Jong-un can continue to string Donald Trump along like this. He knows that Donald Trump is a very unconventional American president. He's unlikely to get anybody else like him again. So if Kim Jong-un is going to cut any kind of deal, he needs to do it while Donald Trump is in power. And actually, one of the things I discovered in the course of reporting this book was that the North Korean diplomats in New York had actually gone to visit a very famous Korean fortune teller in Manhattan <laughs> to ask if President Trump would be re-elected. That's how concerned they are. But how good is the word of the United States here? Because uh, as you well know, the George W. Bush administration did a deal with Gaddafi that he'd relinquish his nuclear program, and yet uh, Bush's successor, Obama, uh, helped lead efforts to uh, topple Gaddafi. Well, that's why I think that Kim Jong-un will never give up his nuclear weapons, because that's the thing about democracy, mm. right? That we change leaders. Uh, so he cannot be assured that mm. the, whoever succeeds Donald Trump, whenever that is, will stick to the same line. So, yeah, he's not giving those up. My guest is Anna Fifield. She's the author of The Great Successor, The Secret Rise and the Rule of Kim Jong-un. Intriguingly, the US subtitle for the book is the divinely perfect destiny of brilliant comrade Kim Jong-un. <laughs> Let's turn to your book because clearly this is a secretive and paranoid regime and that makes it very difficult to find uh, reliable information about Kim Jong-un. Now, based on your research, including interviews with defectors and members of the Kim family, what can you tell us about Kim? Yeah, um, I set out to talk to every person who'd ever met him uh, to be able to put together this portrait of him. And the picture that emerged was of this 
child, this person who lived such an abnormal antisocial life and came from such a dysfunctional family, you know, there's really no way he could have turned out any differently from, you know, the ruthless person we see before us today. Uh, so when he was growing up in North Korea as this little princeling, he lived a life of absolute luxury, but also of isolation in these royal compounds that are scattered around North Korea. He, you know, had Xbox games or whatever the equivalent was then and uh, imported food and watched movies and had his own zoo. His father had a car adapted for him so he could drive it when he was a small child. So he wanted for nothing except for friends. He had no friends. He did not go to school. He had a tutor who came to the house. He didn't even know his half-siblings from his father's other relationships. So he just had his only two full siblings. That's all he had to play with. And that led him to latch on to anybody he could. And one of the people who became a kind of playmate to him when he was seven years old was this Japanese sushi chef who I interviewed several times mm. in Japan. And he had gone into the household there and Kim Jong-un had latched on to him and he used to, the chef used to take him fishing and flying kites. And they listened to Whitney Houston on the chef's Walkman way back when. And, um, you know, he he really was starved for company. Uh, and so then at the age of 12, he went to the Swiss capital of Bern to go to school there. And the idea there was that he should be able to live something of a normal life. So he did go to school. He did live you know, as the son of a diplomat. So he was able to have friends and enjoy going swimming in the French Riviera and eating pizza in Italy and all these kinds of things that an expat kid in Switzerland can enjoy. But even there, he struggled, partly because of language. He, uh, first of all, studied in English and then in German. But also, he never really fit in. He was kind of had behavioral issues. Uh, he was stubborn. But also, I think, because he... He was this little princeling in North Korea. He'd been told when he was eight years old that he would be the next leader of North Korea. And he was given a real general's uniform uh, on his eighth birthday. And real life generals then bowed to him and saluted him from the age of eight years old. So his aunt told me um, that it was very difficult for him to live anything like a normal life, even when they were in Switzerland. And when he came to power after his father's death in was well, late 2011, he was widely written off. Some predicted the regime would collapse within months, yet he's defied expectations. How so? Yes, I mean, he has clearly got an, some kind of innate political skill that he has turned to this job, but he's also learned what he needs to do to be this kleptocratic dictator and that he had these old guard men around him when he took over, people had served his father, and they helped with the transition process that included the head of the army, the head of the propaganda division, and also his uncle who was in charge of economic relations with China. And Kim Jong-un used all of these people and used them for their help and their knowledge and their skills at the time. And then once they'd served their purpose, he got rid of all of them. They were purged in the case of the first two and, and killed, taken to a firing squad in the case of his uncle. Yeah, he, had he his was own uncle with killed. an anti-aircraft <laughs> guns. 
Oh, that was the defence minister. He was blown to smithereens <laughs> with an anti-aircraft gun. Yes, but all of these top people, once they'd served their utility, Kim Jong-un got rid of all of them. So sending a powerful message to everyone else in the regime, you know, don't cross me or don't challenge me because this is what can happen to you. He yes. was telling them he's so ruthless he'll have his own family members killed. Well, on the family, I mean, you say he's more like his grandfather. This is the revered Korean War hero, Kim Il-sung. He was the father of communist North Korea from, what was it, 1948 until 1994. He's more like his mm -hmm. grandfather, you say, than his father from 94 till 2011. Why? So his grandfather was a very charismatic leader who was very gregarious. He was out and about around the country a lot. And he is revered uh, to this day, even by people who have escaped from North Korea, because he was really associated with the good times. He ruled during the reconstruction of North Korea after the Korean War. There was a lot of support. And a little known the, fact the, is that North Korea in those mm -hmm. days, the economy was larger than the South Korean economy, right? That's right. It wasn't until the late 70s that the South Korean economy overtook North Korea. So Kim Il-sung is really associated with those good times, whereas Kim Jong-il, the, the second leader, he came in, the communist bloc had collapsed, Soviet Union had collapsed, the founder had died, North Korea was about to enter this devastating famine that killed about 10% of the population, as many as 2 million people. But also, he was a real oddball. He hated being in public. In 17 years in power, he spoke in public only once, and that was one single sentence, a regime slogan. So he was a very, very different leader. So Kim Jong-un comes along, and he's trying to channel his grandfather. You know, the weird haircut and the funny outfits and everything, it is all because he's trying to look like his grandfather. Fascinating. That's really quite extraordinary. Now, finally, you dedicate your book, Anna, to the 25 million people of North Korea. You say, may you soon be free to follow your dreams. And you paint a pretty ruthless and calculating portrait of Kim. What, if anything, could bring him down? I mean, there are many things that could bring him down. I mean, it's very difficult to predict what would happen about North Korea. Uh, I mean, look, all the predictions of imminent collapse have been wrong so far. Hmm. I think now he is entering quite a dangerous period because he does want to improve the economy. He knows that he can't continue to maintain this myth that he's the best guy for the job while the economy is in such bad state. And people know this now because pretty much every North Korean has seen a South Korean soap opera or a Chinese film or what have you that have been smuggled in. So they know that the outside world is a richer, freer place. So Kim Jong-un needs to allow investment in. He needs to allow trade. He needs to open up the economy a bit. It doesn't have to be a grand reform and opening like China, but even any kind of opening poses risks because information comes in at the same time as money does. And I think that's when it becomes more and more difficult for him to maintain all of the propagandistic myths that have been created around him. So he needs to walk that tightrope. Anna, lovely chatting with you today. Thank you so much, Tom. I enjoyed it. That was via Skype. That was Anna Fifield. She's from the Washington Post in Beijing, and she's the author of The Great Successor, The Secret Rise and Rule of Kim Jong-un. And Anna is also part of a Sydney Opera House event called Antidote. That's at the end of this month. She joins North Korea's former Deputy Ambassador to the United Kingdom, turned defector, Thai Yong-ho, and we'll put a link to that event on our program page. 
on RN. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, not so long ago, it was widely believed that there was no viable alternative to liberal democracy and that almost every nation in the world was bound to become a liberal democracy. Ah, oh, those were the days, right? However, during the past decade or so, the number of liberal democracies, well, that's been declining, reversing a seemingly unstoppable trend. Indeed, according to Freedom House in New York, 2018 was the 13th year in a row when the number of nations with free or partly free political systems declined. In this environment, it might seem strange to think that democracy promotion can work. Yet that's precisely what a new academic paper recommends. Democracy promotion, we're told, is an essential security component of the Americans, Japanese and Australians. It's an underappreciated counter-strategy to China's autocratic promotion. Now, that report, published by the University of Sydney's US Studies Centre, is called Democracy Promotion, ANZUS and the Free and Open Indo-Pacific Strategy. And the author is Levina Lee, a senior lecturer in international relations at Macquarie University in Sydney. Levina, welcome to RN. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Now, your argument is being made in the context of a rising China. How successful has Xi Jinping's authoritarian capitalist development model been across Asia? Well, I think it's uh, obvious to say that China's rapid development over the last 30 years has been very impressive and impressed uh, many in the region. Many of them look at this authoritarian capitalist model as allowing elites to govern efficiently, to make very quick decisions and direct investment in areas that have some kind of long-term benefit very easily. So it has definitely got good press and it is a model that many populations seem to be quite open to. So we've had some mm. research centre like the Pew Research Centre mm -hmm. put together a 38-nation survey in 2017 so here they found that whilst liberal democracy is still viewed, viewed favourably, populations in the Indo-Pacific, in countries like the Philippines, Indonesia, India and Vietnam, were also very open to forms of rule that were autocratic. Right. So autocratic rule, military rule, rule by unelected technocrats was viewed very favourably. And now I think that might be because they look at the Chinese model and that kind of authoritarian model and think, well, we want to develop just as well as China has in this period of time and mm. our systems are much weaker and they might be frustrated by that pace of development. So basically this uh, socialism with uh, Chinese characteristics, it's one way for these developing countries to modernise without the political reform that we take for granted. Absolutely. And I think what's even more interesting is that for the first time in the last couple of years, we've actually seen President Xi Jinping publicly advocating the Chinese development model as a better and a preferred model for development for countries in the region. But how worried should we be? I mean, China is still in an implacably tough region surrounded by more than a dozen neighbours and a few of them really have close, friendly relations. I mean, I know there's Laos and Cambodia there, widely seen as client states of China. Of course, there's North Korea. But many other states in the region uh, are still more pro-American on the security issue, aren't they? I wouldn't see it so much that way. I see China as being the thousand-pound gorilla mm. in the region. And yes, it doesn't have many friends. 
Um, but I'd say that actually it's the Southeast Asian countries, these small, weak countries mm. that are neighbouring it, that are much more concerned about the rise of China because China is frankly outspending them militarily by a long way. Mm. Um, it outspends all of them combined and its economy is bigger than all of theirs combined. So when you think about the balance of power or the, mm. the weight uh, in the region, it's actually China that has the biggest weight. Now, we all too often hear that China is a revisionist state that's bent on disturbing the balance of power in the region that really the Americans have helped impose. Canberra, as you've, as you've also acknowledged in your paper, is less forthright about naming a country like China as revisionist. But there's a, surely a counter-argument here. Isn't China really bound by a lot of weaknesses and limitations? You think about their demographic challenges, environmental, economic, all those things? Yeah, look, I think um, there's been a lot of literature coming out about the weaknesses of China. My paper's really talking about dealing with what China is now. Mm. We can't really necessarily predict when these demographic or environmental challenges might become overwhelming or the leadership can actually deal with it. What we have to deal with is the fact that China is actually capturing elites, undermining governance in our very close region, Southeast uh -huh. Asia, that it is changing facts on the ground strategically, and we really don't have the luxury of waiting. I can imagine some of our listeners, particularly within the bureaucracy in Canberra, DFAT, yeah. couldn't they say that democracy promotion is an attempt by Western powers interfering in the internal affairs of sovereign states? How would you respond to that? <laughs> Well, I think you're right. What I would say is, okay, one, you've got to think about a region. We've, uh, I think you started the program by highlighting the democratic decline that we've been mm -hmm. seeing around the world. In Southeast Asia, the decline is no different. Mm -hmm. So we've got only Timor-Leste that is described as being free. Um, we've got countries like Myanmar, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines and Singapore that are only partly free and the rest are designated as not free. Mm. So we're in a, a, a unique, well, I shouldn't say unique position, but we're a democracy amongst a whole range of countries close by that have really compromised democracies or not democracies at all. And I think it's about two things. One, it's about how governments make decisions, an open process of decision-making versus opaque decision-making. And it's much easier for Australia and our national interests to promote our national interests, to be able to more clearly understand how our neighbours actually make decisions. But let me put you on the spot, though, because yeah. colonisation, these people, these folks in this region have long memories. Would this revive a sense that the Western powers are interfering in their internal affairs and upset the integrity of their systems? Right. Okay. Well, I on that point, I think it's important as well that, to note that Australia, in its foreign policy white paper, it does say very clearly that they don't want to impose our values on any other country. So in my report, what I say, I think that's a valid point and probably goes to the possible criticisms to basically partner with countries that are already liberal democracies, that mm. profess to be liberal democracies, where we then can't be accused really of promoting values that they don't themselves profess to hold. I am advocating that we choose countries like the Philippines, Thailand and Indonesia, mm. very big Southeast Asian countries where which actually matter quite a lot to us and use our aid programs to help them to strengthen their institutions and to promote civil society participation, free press, et cetera, that mm. I've mentioned before. Um, I don't think that that should be open to criticism. 
Yes. It's in the post-9-11 era, the whole notion of democracy promotion has got a bad rap and understandable reasons because, uh, you know, the Iraq war, among others, have led to uh, unintended consequences. Yeah, definitely. I think democracy promotion as a concept has got a really bad name mm. after Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. So the idea of, of being able to change a regime and imposing a new system in a, uh, in a country, in a society that has no experience of either liberalism or democracy, is fraught with difficulty. So mm. we really should be choosing countries that are already uh, self-professed democracies that have existing institutions in place. Lavina, great to have you on RN today. Thank you. That was Lavina Lee, a senior lecturer at the Department of Modern History, Politics and International Relations at Macquarie University in Sydney, and her paper is called Democracy Promotion, ANZUS and the Free and Open Indo-Pacific Strategy, that's published by the University of Sydney's US Studies Centre. Well, that's it for this week's show. And remember, if you'd like to hear past episodes, including the popular Conrad Black-Simon Heffer debate about Boris Johnson from last week, just go to our homepage at abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. You can also download our podcasts via the ABC Listen app. I'm Tom Switzer, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Music.